Hello, I'm James Lindsay, and you're listening to the New Discourses podcast. What I want to get into today gets a little bit deep, so we've got to get right into it. Um, Generally speaking, just kind of as some housekeeping, I actually am trying to move away from just criticizing critical social justice and other approaches to critical theory. Um, Just criticizing is close to what they're doing. It's not quite what they're doing, but I don't want to be just critical. I actually want to talk about general, solid principles, liberal principles, and show them in comparison to the ways that critical social justice and the other critical theories out there twist them to their own ends or reject them outright. Today I actually want to talk about a particular argumentative principle, the principle of charity, and the way we use it in our arguments. As it turns out, critical methods constantly put us in this unfair double bind where we have to give their arguments charity, the benefit of the doubt, but we also can't give their arguments charity. So if we don't give their arguments charity, we're accused of strawmanning, or more commonly for their their language, we're failing to engage with their arguments. And we'll definitely hear about that, and we will be dismissed. We will not be taken seriously in our criticism, so we have to give them charity. If we do give them charity, though, they take the inch we're giving them and take a mile. Maybe you've heard of a rhetorical strategy called the Mott and Bailey strategy, and this is how they're doing. Um, they're in fact, doing a particularly insidious form of it. Uh, they're making you build their Mott while they go play in their Bailey. And if you haven't heard of this important argumentative trick, don't worry. You will. We'll get to it. Um, so anyway... I imagine that you're a lot like I am, or the way I used to be anyway, before I read so much of this stuff, and you see stuff that, say, is coming out of the critical social justice crowd that's just really perplexing to you. You get this feeling like you know there's a point being made that you can't really deny, but on the other hand, something's really off about it, and it's hard to say what. Uh, The principle of charity says that you should try to make best out of their arguments. So um, here's an example, like maybe it's not actually the best example. We'll come to a better example that came up later in the podcast. But maybe you're reading something about the way kids of certain minority races don't have equal shakes in our schools. Maybe they're not testing as well on average or something. Now, this is a problem, problem, clearly, but something doesn't quite sit right with you about the arguments they're presenting because certain things don't line up. For example, um, it's clear that white kids aren't testing on average as well as Asian kids, but that's um, not a problem, except that it is. And uh, the point being made is that um, black and Hispanic kids are, I guess, they're the real minorities as opposed to Asians, need a leg up. And that seems reasonable. But to do this, Asians need to be discriminated against somehow. I mean, that was very famously a scandal at Harvard recently. Um, And this is all necessary in order to achieve something that sounds really good, which is equity. Um, And... Still, something else seems a little off that this is all down to racism. There's no possibility that anything except systemic racism is the cause, and white people are all to blame in whiteness. But again, there's that weird Asian contingent where they're actually outperforming white people, and so they have to be accused of being white adjacent or acting white or model minorities or something. And something about all of it just doesn't square up. But when you try to go through all the arguments about equity and why it's needed, uh, a lot of it seems important, a lot of it seems generally good, then there are these weird parts, and 
you feel like you have to defend the, they just mean this more reasonable thing, but you still can't shake the feeling that something doesn't quite square up here. Um, that's the feeling I want to try to explain today. So to understand it, we need to realize that critical theorists are playing a radically different game than the rest of us. And this is a game that they've set up so that they are the only ones who can win. So what we have to do is we have to change the game that we're playing in order to stop the whole game from getting shifted to their rules, which are set up so that only they can win. And when they win, their political and social agendas get forced upon the rest of us, implemented into our institutions, and then we have to play their game even more. Uh, and our game goes away. And the thing is, we don't really realize that we're playing their game, or playing into their game, I should say. Uh, in reality, um, they have set up their game, so it looks like we have to play the way we usually play with principle of charity to their arguments, for example, but they're actually making use of that to forward their agenda. So in fact, that one of the biggest ways that they do this is by manipulation of the principle of charity. They are not just letting, but forcing other people to build and defend their mot, which is the charitable, easily defended interpretation of their view while they run amok in the Bailey, which is some radical activist aspect or application of it. So let's jump track for a second. Um, in the last few days, just the last few days, all of the following happened. A petition circulated online to have a paper at the Yale Law Journal retracted because it argued that triaging around disability during an emergency that stresses our medical system, say like a pandemic, is potentially acceptable and legal a paper about gender dysphoria that goes against contemporary gender theory was retracted, not just a petition to have it retracted, it actually was retracted following a similar activist petition, and it was taken out of an electronic neuroscience journal called eNeuro. Um, the rather consistently left, if not far left, journalist Chris Hayes raised some uncomfortable questions about Joe Biden and his potential uh, sexual misconduct, or the allegations thereof, and he was summarily subjected to cancel culture. As a result, Fire Hayes and Fire Chris Hayes trended on Twitter, and the reason given was because of the potential political and moral implications of the questions he raised. A math professor at the University of North Texas mocked a flyer about microaggressions. He actually wrote on the board, don't leave garbage lying around with an arrow pointing to a stack of microaggressions flyers. And he was fired for this. Um, most importantly, uh, maybe no one found any of these incidents particularly surprising. And this is because they're some part of some weird new normal that no one really remembers signing up for or wanting. But it's here. These, um, and I stress again, they're just a few recent examples among a much, much wider body of potential examples, uh, are, are examples of a game that's not the game we're all playing. Uh, academic papers in the game that we play should be refuted 
with other academic papers, with commentary and the likes. They should not be retracted because of heckler campaigns that shout or threaten them out of existence. Journalists shouldn't be fired for asking politically uncomfortable questions or publishing politically uncomfortable pieces. That's literally their job. Uh, they should expose the errors. If you The game we're playing is that you should expose the errors in the reporting with more and better reporting, and then let their editors decide if they are solid journalists or not worth keeping on or being reprimanded or whatever. Um, professors shouldn't be fired for voicing heterodox opinions. If you don't know, in fact, that's why tenure was invented in the first place. It's not some conspiracy. The idea was to give professors the ability to voice heterodox opinions in the name of academic freedom without having to fear losing their job. And that spirit of tenure is a spirit of academic freedom that should apply to every professor, whether they're tenured or not. So these activists, we have to realize, are not playing the same game we're all playing. They're using the fact that we're playing our game to, to play their own, which is a power game. They're playing a different game because they don't believe the world works the way that it actually works. They instead believe that the world is all power and politics, and they believe that all power and politics are always self-reinforcing, always self-maintaining, always self-legitimizing, and always willfully blind to their own biases and the oppression that they cause. And thus, in the name of liberation, they need to be torn down in revolution. So those papers, while they legitimize harmful views and will be used to continue justifying them, uh, those journalists, professors, you can't judge the editor or their superiors to judge their work accordingly because the editor and their superiors happen to be in on the power game too. So they probably need to be replaced for the same reason. Uh, you actually see this with some of the academic papers that have been called for retraction. It's not just that the papers get retracted, as, say, with the uh, case of R Rebecca Tuvel uh, in tr publishing a transracial paper in the feminist journal Hypatia. Uh, Hypatia is a very, very well-respected feminist philosophy journal, and the result there was a complete overturning of the editorial board. Uh, it wasn't just that the paper had to be retracted or kept or whatever the argument was. It was that the entire editorial board had royally screwed up and had to be replaced. And you see calls for the jobs of the, sometimes even the degrees of academics who publish these papers. This isn't how the academic game is played. And I want to try to explain to you that the principle of charity with people who aren't playing charitably is part of the problem. Because for them, everything is down to an exercise of power. It's them exercising power against what they believe is a self-reinforcing power that cannot be beaten any other way than to be torn down root and branch for its problematics. And then it has to be replaced, which means replacing people primarily. Uh, you have to take people who play the dominant game, take them out and replace them with people who play the liberatory game instead. The name for this is critical theory. Now, these examples and the details around them aren't the point. They're just a few points that I wanted to bring up about how different the critical game is from the game that we all play, that we all have come to take for granted uh, because it works. So our game, I want to say, is a lib the liberal game is a reasonable and fair game. 
their game is a ruthless game. And if we don't understand that, we can't play with them. <laughs> it's really dangerous. Um, so this is what we need to understand about the kind of work the activists are doing and what who they are. The, they are critical activists who have a critical consciousness, which means they read the world through critical theories. We aren't. So they're playing a very different game than the game we're playing. And their goal is, in fact, to destroy the game that we've all been playing for the last few centuries and replace it with a game they can never lose. Or so they think. So let me briefly remind you about critical theory so you can see why they're fundamentally different as a game from the liberal game. Critical theories are not necessarily about properly understanding the thing they criticize. Uh, when they were outlined formally for the first time in 1937 by the neo-Marxist philosopher Max Horkheimer, he intentionally distinguished critical theories from traditional theories. Traditional theories try to explain how things work and why they are as they are. I have fallen into the $10 word trap of saying that they're perspicuous or perpiscacious. I always get those two confused. That's why they're $10 words. Uh... Critical theories have a very different agenda, though. Their goal is actually to explain the thing in terms of how it fails. So they want to explain not how a thing works, but how the thing that they're criticizing contains problematics, which are moral failures, either real moral failures or potential moral failures. They want to explain how the thing either contains problematics or is problematic in its entirety. That's the nature of their criticism. They also, therefore, have to have a moral agenda against which they're going to do that criticism. And that moral agenda in critical theories typically goes against whatever it deems to be the unfair power structures in society. And it generally seeks liberation from the oppression that those power structures cause in one form or another. Another characteristic of critical theories is that they have to be able to be put into action by activists. That is, critical theories are inherently political. They tend to be zero-sum, where there are no win-win situations. Uh, there are only oppressor versus oppressed or exploiter versus exploited dynamics in critical theories. And their job is to criticize those. So, in a sense, the game that we are all playing in liberal societies is the traditional theory game. We want to understand how things are and make adjustments to make them work better. We want to be charitable to our, our I guess, opponents, if you want to debate opponents and understand their view clearly. Critical theory is a different game. It does not particularly care about how things are, except in terms of how they oppress or otherwise prevent liberation, or how they can be construed to do so even if they don't. They're only concerned with whatever power dynamics the critical theory happens to see as being at the heart of things, and they're playing political war games against that power structure. So we're over here playing this game where we're trying to be understanding, fair, perspicacious, and so on, and they're playing politics, and they're playing to win. And they see the game that we're playing as inherently rigged, in fact, evil. Uh, it's inherently oppressive of some unjust, 
uh, oppressive of some group of people and unjustly benefiting the the people who are oppressors and their moral mission is that needs to be destroyed including the system that allows it to happen so critical social justice is usually the thing i talk most about it's what i'm most informed about and it is just one form of contemporary critical theory that has a lot of influence um it's the one responsible for the events that i just mentioned uh I've both written and spoken, in fact, about how critical social justice is like a virus on our liberal societies, and I have to do that again here, uh, because it's just the best metaphor for understanding it. But before reminding you of that, uh, I have to remind you also that I'm not characterizing them as viruses. I'm not making a case about them that they don't make about themselves they call themselves viruses as well, or compare their theory to it anyway in activism. And so I'm not in any way trying to, un to, to characterize them unfairly here. As I've noted before, in 2016, two feminist scholars, Bram Foz and Michael Carter, published an academic paper in a relatively small academic journal, and it carried the title Women's Studies as a Virus, Institutional Feminism, Affect, and the Projection of Danger. In that paper, Foz and Carter make the point that women's studies should see itself through the metaphor of the virus, comparing the discipline, if you will, in favorable terms to other plagues like Ebola and HIV. And lest you think I exaggerate, I can quote them on this. In their abstract of the paper, they write, This paper theorizes that one future pedagogical priority of women's studies is to train students not only to master a body of knowledge, but also to serve as symbolic viruses that infect, unsettle, and disrupt traditional and entrenched fields. In this essay, we first posit how the metaphor of the virus in part exemplifies an ideal feminist pedagogy. And we then investigate how both women's studies and the spread of actual viruses, e.g. Ebola, HIV, produce similar kinds of emotional responses in others. So the paper genuinely endorses this view, discussing specifically the ways in which the viruses infect their hosts, leave behind traces of genetic material that can cause cancers and other health problems, thus rendering them transformative, I kid you not, uh, illustrating ways in which viruses are opportunistic and exploit or even increase the inherent weaknesses of the systems they attack, that's your HIV. And this, again, I kid you not, is cast in a favorable light for the metaphor as it applies to critical social justice initiatives. To, to really drive the point home, eventually the paper concludes women's studies as an infectious discipline one that serves not only as a virus that attaches to the host bodies of other disciplines and disrupts and infects them, but one that fundamentally alters the cell's blueprint and directs it to a new purpose. This might accurately describe the kinds of work that the field could prioritize and embrace, or in any case should prioritize and should embrace. Women's studies students in the fields they infect and disrupt both gain from such an arrangement, as Claw and Parr noted, Quote, in its replications, the virus does not remain the same, nor does that which it confronts and transitions, transits through, end quote. Just as the women's studies, or just as women's studies has gained much from its institutional status, it has also lost some of its bite, a problem this essay takes up. 
Further, if women's studies also works to train students to become their own kinds of viruses, capable of infecting, disrupting, unsettling, and altering their own spaces at work, home, and relationships, and in their communities, perhaps framing women's studies as dangerous may actually prove useful and interesting. Dangerous things, after all, transform not only through destruction, but also through imagining and redirecting toward something new. So I quoted those passages in an essay of mine on new discourses that I titled Critical Theories of Virus on the Liberal Body Politic. Um, to quote myself, maybe a bit awkwardly, I'll read a bit from that essay. In brief, my claim here is that liberal societies function in particular ways and have adopted particular norms, values, and patterns that simultaneously render them highly adaptive and effective amongst human societies. This also leaves them uniquely susceptible to certain perversions of those norms, values, and patterns. Furthermore, critical theories represent a highly evolved, extraordinarily effective means by which those norms, values, and patterns can be perverted and turned into a kind of infectious agent for which the viral metaphor is almost perfect. Thus, we see liberal societies like those throughout the democratic West, particularly susceptible to infection by critical theories, including the postmodern adaptation for the purposes of achieving social justice, which I have named critical social justice. For this virus, we need a liberal immune response, critical thinking, that minimizes its influence while keeping the liberal body politic intact and healthy. Of note, I do not think critical theories are the only such virus with this dangerous capacity against which we need immunity, but it is on these that this essay focuses. So my point, of course, here is not to rehash that whole essay. That's a different topic. Um, I wanted to do something a lot more specific here, which was to talk about it in terms of the principle of charity. Uh, first, I want to talk, though, about that critical thinking, liberal vaccine, and the, the virus itself that we're up against with critical theory. Um, critical theories mimic critical thinking. Uh, there's two meanings of critical. There's specific one and the one we all usually embrace. Liberalism seeks to make progress. <laughs> critical theorists are very often progressive, but they're using two meanings of the word progressive. There's his relevant to achieving their goals, that's progress, and all other forms are actually maintaining the status quo. Liberalism seeks fairer and more just societies, and we hear that a lot from these critical theorists, but they have different meanings of justice and fairness. Um, it does not look like justice and fairness in the sense that uh, most of us in liberal societies embrace, and in fact, they're actively against those views of justice and fairness, saying that they maintain injustice and unfairness. So the point that I wanted to get into is that the critical theorists are playing a very different game from the rest of us. And the way they keep making so much headway with their game is because we keep letting them do it. We let them inject their viral RNA into the liberal body politic because it looks like liberal RNA, but it's not. It's critical. Um, their game does not invite critical thinking. It problematizes everything it doesn't like out of existence. This is where you get cancel culture of problematic people and forced retractions of problematic papers. If people or papers make cases that could be kind of potentially have implications that go against their political agenda, those have to be destroyed, not debated, not discussed, destroyed, replaced with something transformative and liberatory. 
So their game doesn't seek to make progress, it seeks to get reparations and to induce a social revolution on behalf of the so-called minoritized groups that they believe are on the short end of the sticks of societal power, both historically and today. But they conveniently define those systems, the problems that those systems contain as being ordinary and permanent, which means revolution also has to be permanent. So for these reasons, their game does not seek justice or fairness, it seeks destruction. Disrupt and dismantle is the phrase you hear over and over again. And they seek to advance their own political agenda over everyone. So again, the game the critical mindset plays is one that's all about power. All it cares about is who wields it, how it gets used, and especially who benefits from it and how it causes oppression. Not even necessarily has it manifest in reality, but as they define these ideas. So let's take that paper about triaging around disabilities that I mentioned before. Clearly, there's some ethical argument to be made about triage and how difficult triage decisions are to be made. And this argument is necessarily complex, nuanced. Indeed, it's difficult, tragic even, and potentially horrific. Hard decisions are, by definition, hard. And getting good answers around something terrible, like how to triage, this is an absolutely horrible state to be under in any circumstances. This is really difficult. Critical approaches to disability studies don't care about that. They actually insist that the very existence of any such argument that, say, triaging around disability is even legal, not whether it's right or wrong, just that it's legal, would be evidence that society hates disabled people, and even that it would be okay to eradicate them in a genocide. And this term, genocide, is one they throw around rather loosely, if people familiar with it will know. Um, they seeing, I mean, they, they can also construe finding a medical cure for any given disability as a genocide of people with that disability, which is insane. But the, the reasoning is because if we cured the disability, there would be no people with that disability left after the fact even though all of them would still be alive and healthy, just lacking their disabled status, which would cause them to lack their disabled identity, which is called a genocide of that identity. I really want to impress upon you that they're playing a very different game. You can tell because the words that they use don't mean what we think they mean, and they're really picking at sore spots in the liberal body politic with the words that they're misusing like that. So I don't want to put out something false, of course. I don't know that disabled people have specifically made the argument that we should therefore favor disabled people over the able-bodied people in triaging decisions. But if not, I do think we're literally only a millimeter away from it. Um, Not because I'm making some guess about arguments from disability studies that I'm totally qualified to make, but because the exact same argument has already been made with regard to racial minorities. That for the sake of equity, because racial minorities have been systemically harmed by our existing power structures, including in the case of the novel coronavirus, racial minorities should be favored in medical triaging situations that come up within that context, you know, to even the numbers out a bit for equity. Um, This isn't playing 
the same game the rest of us are playing. It's so important to understand that. None of this is the same game the rest of us are playing, but we tend to go along with it because it, even though it feels a little weird, it looks too much like the game we're playing in some way. And we have to try to give it charity. Uh, you know, the charity in that case would be, well, you know, the numbers are looking bad for black and Hispanic people in particular in the coronavirus. So something's causing those numbers. So maybe it actually is more fair. And we have historically discriminated against them and disenfranchised them. So maybe it is more fair to kind of try to make up for that a little bit by prioritizing their care and by framing it in terms of prioritizing their care where they just want to prioritize care so that they don't get double screwed and, and by by changing it to talking about prioritizing rather than determining how we're going to distribute care for equity, you can create this mot for them where it seems much more reasonable than what they're actually arguing. Um, so now I can give you the better example I mentioned before. It's an example that came across my path quite recently, a few days ago, but it was written, I think, at the end of 2019. It really evokes that feeling of something not quite squaring up. Uh, this can also help us understand how the game they're playing is different than the game we're playing and how we keep falling into playing their game on their terms. Uh, before I can, I have to briefly add a dimension about how critical theories work so we can know something about this. Um, in particular, I have to, to not just focus on critical theories, but actually postmodern critical theories. Uh, critical social justice is, in fact, uh, critical theory that has taken up postmodern theory as a tool that's uh, for the purpose of social justice or really for the purpose of identity politics. That's the simplest way to understand it. Um, but this idea that you have to understand is called, that comes out of postmodernism, is called radical subjectivism. So in our game, we believe there's an objective reality that we can know something about. This is not a very radical proposition, but in theirs, this is not true at all. All access to reality for them is subjective. It happens through minds that are embedded in cultures that have to share their ideas or understand their ideas even via language, which is a cultural construction. And so all of that shapes the limits upon which the minds in the societies can think. And so subjective reality, which is only understandable through our lived experience of reality as we interpret it in our identity groups is the only thing they acknowledge as real. There is no other objective reality. There's no access to objective reality. They, in fact, do argue that people live in different realities according to their cultural backgrounds. And this is a very different game than most of us are playing, so different that we don't know what to do with it when we run into it. The idea that people occupy different realities, that there is no common reality to appeal to, is so foreign to most of us now that we don't even know what to do with it. Uh, in fact, many of us have absolutely no idea what the people who are saying stuff like this are talking about when they bring it up. So if they forward ideas from their radically subjective perspective, we get confused and we give a lot more charity to their argument than we should because it's so far out of our usual understanding that we just can't believe that people mean what they're very plainly stating and most definitely meaning. So the example that I came across the other day was in an article in Teacher Magazine titled Indigenous Perspectives in Maths. I shared this on Twitter indicating that people uh, or the right things like this are playing a very different game, the critical theory game, and that this game can 
even get played in mathematics, which most people believe to be the most objective pursuit possible for rather good reasons, frankly. If you read the article, that actually, for the most part, seems pretty bland. It's not very long, even though it's classified as a long read. Most of it is rather straightforward, talking about uh, indigenous conceptions of number and mathematics, and doing it in a very kind of survey of mathematics kind of way. I took a history of mathematics and survey of mathematics course uh, very early on in graduate school that uh, I did my PhD in math that was like this. We talked about, you know, different number systems and different mathematics systems that existed in different cultures at different times. It was very interesting. And so I put this out there and then, you know, I'm say even in math, you know, and so some guy sends me a direct message on Twitter to ask me about this saying, um, in a quote, although the premise and title say math and culture are connected, which is dumb, it seems like the author is trying to push back on the idea that indigenous people did not have math. I don't like his premise, but his core idea is probably good. He's trying to teach more people that indigenous tribes weren't so simplistic. What do you think? So, um, you can kind of see a lot going on here, right? Uh, he is trying to teach more people that indigenous tribes weren't so simplistic, so the dominant power dynamic, as they would explain it in indigenous studies, would be that it kind of draws off of what's called Orientalism, uh, which comes out of post-colonial theory, would be that uh, so-called enlightened, meaning post-enlightenment Westerners, tend to think of indigenous and colonial uh, knowledge systems or uh, oriental knowledge systems as being... Um, quaint, uh, simplistic, superstitious, and so on, and not well-developed or uh, deep or methodologically rigorous. And so that's the power dynamic. And clearly, you know, this nice fellow, he is just trying to teach more people to, to realize that that's not an accurate picture of reality. But then at the same time, he says, you know, the thing about math and culture being connected is dumb and that he doesn't agree with the premise. So that feeling that something doesn't square it comes through. Um, and to give you an idea of what that premise that he thinks is dumb is, and I agree, by the way, it, but it's more than dumb, and that's the point. It, you, I'll read the whole start of the indigenous math article, um, after which it starts to get dull and kind of straightforward. So the article begins... To see and understand an indigenous perspective of mathematics, you must accept the premise that mathematics is intrinsically connected to culture and consequently has many different cultural expressions. A common perception is that mathematics, as well as science, is objective, i.e. culture and value-free. Objectivity is often seen as the foundation of mathematics and science because it is believed that it leads to absolute facts and truths. However, I would contend that all knowledge systems are bound by culture, including mathematics, and once its subjectivity is embraced, there is a much richer, diverse knowledge system to engage with and understand. I actually put the inflection on that incorrectly. There is a much richer and diverse knowledge system to engage with and understand. I would also argue that embracing the diversity of mathematics will lead to an education that provides a much deeper understanding and allows students to personally connect with the subject area. 
So you can see a lot there too. You can see this radical subjectivism for sure. And so did the guy who DM'd me on Twitter, um, which he didn't agree with. I don't like his premise. But the guy who DM'd me didn't really do anything with it, right? It wasn't about the premise he didn't like. He focused on the part that was charitable to his argument, even though he could see something that didn't really square about this. And maybe you have that same feeling with him. I used to, and I hear it all the time. So to quote again, it seems like the author is trying to push back on the idea that indigenous people did not have math. I don't like his premise, but his core idea is probably good. He is trying to teach people that indigenous tribes weren't so simplistic. Paraphrasing this to its core essence, this is the comment. This is how you give charity to an argument like this indigenous math argument. Um, it seems like the author is making a, a case for a reasonable enough thing. I don't like his premise, but that's not the point, because his core idea is probably good, and the principle of charity says that we need to focus on that part, which we understand from within our system, because he's trying to do some good thing. And good for this guy that DM'd me. I mean, honestly, uh, charity is super important within the liberal uh, debate and dialectic process, the knowledge production process. We have to try to understand one another. Um, unfortunately, there's more going on here. The guy who DM'd me is playing one game, and the critical theorist who wrote the article is playing a completely different game, and we're making way for that. What I replied, actually, you know, rather tersely, in DM form was uh, that this is a Trojan horse. Um, here's their game. They insert a crazy revolutionary idea alongside a sensible mind-expanding argument. Uh, if you know what I'm talking about, the Mott and Bailey are getting simultaneously constructed. This is a standard technique that they use. Uh, their writing is all constructed around this. So what happens is you end up defending his mop for him while anyone drawn to the article reads all this crazy wackadoodle shit about math just being a cultural construction that's not objective, and that's actually the most important part for him to have forwarded in print. That's the ball they're trying to move down the field. So this is why it feels like something doesn't square. Something doesn't. Alongside a bland, largely uncontroversial argument about indigenous views about numbers and mathematics, there's this weird radical subjectivism thing at the very beginning that can't possibly be the real point, at least from our game's perspective. And this is what we have to understand. They aren't playing our game. They're playing a completely different game, even, um, even in mathematics. Um, and their game is all about rejecting the entire cultural system, including our systems of knowledge, by claiming that they're just one cultural system among many. And in fact, they're arguing even more, that the knowledge system that we use, which looks for objective truth, is not a good system. It's not on par with other cultural systems. It's actually worse, because it isn't forthright enough about its limitations, because it believes falsely, as they would say, that it's objective. Um, and this is also false, by the way. We are aware that biases exist and so on in the liberal game, but they say the same thing over and over and over again as if we don't. Uh, more importantly, uh, they're also arguing from the critical perspective that uh, that the existing knowledge system, the liberal system, the game we're all playing, is bad because it's not only blind, willfully blind to its its own biases, but it's also willfully blind to its to the oppression that it causes people. Specifically here, 
It's causing oppression by ignoring indigenous systems, which goes on further to ostensibly harm the educational potential of maybe indigenous or other students who would presumably do better if they learned that other math instead. So again, this this all plays on those double meanings of critical fairness, progress, and it's really effective. They expect us to give the charity. We do give the charity and we can just skate right by the radical part and try to focus on the good side that they're trying to do, give the most positive version of their argument that you possibly can, while they've injected this radical, literally radical, like tear the system down radical idea in uh, and, and got you to support the supporting arguments for it. So this is more insight than into the virus that critical social justice and critical theory more generally inject into our liberal body politic. This is how it works, but I wanted to make this discussion more about the vaccine, so we're going to have to talk about the principle of charity, the Mott and Bailey thing, because the principle of charity works like a receptor site where their virus is consistently getting in. And so we have to protect that receptor site or disable its ability to do that if we want to be vaccinated against the thing they call a virus, which is themselves and their methods. So the principle of charity is actually really important in liberal arguments. It is almost never good to assume that the person that you're talking with is malicious or crazy. Um, it's usually best to assume that they have good intentions. Uh, we actually, Peter Bogosian and I wrote a book uh, last year called How to Have Impossible Conversations and what we say about intentions uh, and assuming intentions in the book is that you should only ever make one assumption about your conversation partner's intentions and that should be that they are better than uh, whatever you assume that they are. Um, we also discuss a concept that's got kind of a fursone of cool around in the pandemic recently. It's called Rappaport's Rules. Um, the first of Rappaport's Rules really uh, so it actually went around a few weeks ago. It got really popular. People were ha taking real pains in their, you know, stay-at-home order arguments they're getting into with their family members um, to pause, to slow down, to really make sure to hear their conversation partner out, understand them so clearly that before they would respond that they can say back to the other person, make their point back to them so clearly that the, that the person they're talking with says, yes, you understood me correctly, before you go any further. So it's not a back and forth. It's a, somebody says something and you say it back to them, do I have it right? And until they say, yes, you actually understand me, then you can do your, your fourth to the back. Um, and this actually helps a lot. Uh, people feel heard. People know that they're understood. Discussions don't derail into arguments. It's used in therapy a lot of times, uh, especially like couples therapy and mediation. It's, it's critical to the mature side of the liberal approach to dialogue over disagreements, and it's all about that principle of charity. Um, of course, you can read more about that uh, and intentions and other conversational things and how to have impossible conversations by Peter Bogosian and I, if you want. Um, so anyway, that's what my friend was doing in the direct message with me about indigenous math he said it seems like the author is trying to push back on the idea that indigenous people did not have math i don't like his premise but his core idea is probably good he's trying to teach more people that indigenous tribes weren't so simplistic and that's the thing they say yeah yeah you understood that's the point except it wasn't the point point." and this is what happens 
to you when you try to point out that something, say like an equity, uh, isn't quite square, uh, but you have to defend it. Where you know somehow equity requires discrimination to achieve it, and you want to say that's off kilter, but you don't know how, and it, then it gets explained to you with something that you know friendly, like because it thinks we're unequal now, we all have to be unequal in return to achieve equity. So you have to use inequality that favors certain people to undo inequality that disfavors certain people. And it seems like a reasonable argument. They're just saying that. And, you know, I get this kind of stuff about critical social justice all the time now. I get blowback from people who support me in particular, who are, you know, moderate on the left or even in the center, uh, rarely on the right. And the, the phrasing is very often something it carries that magic J word, just. It's very much like it just seems like they're saying. That's usually some variation of the introduction, and it's followed by a very nice interpretation, the most charitable and generous interpretation of what they've said. You know, well, friends, that's the mot. You're building their castle for them to, to defend their argument. And the Bailey that they are forwarding is usually something quite radical when it's a critical method. They're radical by definition. And when we help them build their mot and defend it for them by being too charitable with their intentions, when we say it just seems like they're saying they're moving their radical ball downfield toward making the only game in town be the one that they always win. So what is a mot and bailey? I promise to explain it. I don't want to get too into it, but it's a rhetorical strategy. It, it, it's what makes you feel like there's something that's not quite square, and yet that criticism of the thing is even more unfair. So a mot is a very defensible position. Quote, it seems like the author is trying to push back on the idea that indigenous people do not have math. The core idea is probably good. He's trying to teach more people that indigenous tribes weren't so simplistic. The Bailey is a desired position that's usually very activist in orientation that is very hard to defend. I'll read the whole thing again. To see and understand an indigenous perspective of mathematics, you must accept the premise that mathematics is intrinsically connected to culture and consequently has many different cultural expressions. A common perception is that mathematics, as well as science, is objective, that is, culture and value-free. Objectivity is often seen as the foundation of mathematics and science because it is believed that it leads to absolute facts and truths. However, I would contend that all knowledge systems are bound by culture, including mathematics, and once its subjectivity is embraced, there is a much richer, diverse knowledge system to engage with and understand. I would also argue that embracing the diversity of mathematics will lead to an education that provides a much deeper understanding and allows students to personally connect with the subject area. So the Mott and Bailey idea, that's the Bailey right there. That's the radical idea. And it's just trying to teach them about, you know, the indigenous math wasn't so simplistic. That's the Mott. That's the defensible thing. Um, this language of Mott and Bailey actually goes back to a style of castle from back whenever we had castles as a major element of our defense. Uh, a mot is an extremely fortified tower. Usually it's built on top of a mound. It's supplied to withstand a, sh a short siege. The bailey is great farmland around it where the village is, where people want to live and do their work and business. No one wants to live in the mot. It's dank, it's dirty, it's closed off. Um, it's uncomfortable, but lots of people, including your enemies, do want to live in the Bailey. 
and they want to take it over. So maybe you've built a light defense, a moat or a wall around the bailey, but that's, again, only a light defense. If marauding people come, everyone in the bailey can retreat to the mott. They can throw rocks, shoot arrows, dump boiling oil or whatever until the marauders go away, and then they can reoccupy the bailey. They can go back to the place that they want to be. So as a rhetorical strategy, the Mott and Bailey thing works the same. And I'm trying to make the point that critical theory is always building a Mott and Bailey. And they force you to defend their Mott for them while they take over the Bailey. Um, so as a rhetorical strategy, it'll be that someone's spouting some crazy thing, like that our schools have to be completely overthrown and reorganized for equity, including not disciplining kids who act up, uh, especially if they're minorities. This is sometimes called restorative justice, by the way which is its own little play on language. Maybe it's getting rid of gifted programs. Maybe it's getting rid of advanced placement courses or the likes. Maybe it's changing admission standards so that they discriminate against Asians and, or, and whites or that dramatically favor other races. Uh, maybe they demand hiring more minorities as teachers and administrators, but particularly and especially only ones who are already trained in the critical methods and who plan to teach uh, critical methods to kids and so on for equity sake. So that's the Bailey, right? That's the thing they're actually after. Um, or maybe it's just that mathematic, mathematics is just a cultural product that makes a false claim to object, objectivity that doesn't really exist. So we need to open up our mathematical thinking to completely different knowledge systems and subjectivity and diversity and math. Those are the Baileys. That's fertile, fertile activist farmland where they can make transformational change for what they think is liberation, and it's where they want to live. It's the ideas that they actually want to advance. It is those ideas that are the totally different game that they are playing where they can't lose. Their mod is way more defensible. It's something like, we just want to overcome the effects of systemic racism and correct disparities and achievement in our schools. We need to treat all of our kids equity, equitably, and our schools need equity. Or Maybe it seems like the author is trying to push back on the idea that indigenous people did not have math. The core idea is probably good. He's trying to teach more people that indigenous tribes weren't so simplistic. This is where you can see that they're making you play a game that isn't the usual game. You have to play by their rules, which are you build our mott for us or you're not charitable. And uh, we keep the thing in the mott or you're a racist. And then that's how you lose. And they start doing transformational work with the ideas in the Bailey where they can go about changing the rules of the game to a game where they can't lose. Uh, some other examples. The Mott. Now, harm to already marginalized people will come from publishing the wrong ideas. We have to defend the defenseless. The Bailey. Words are violence. Papers we find problematic to our agenda should be retracted. Uh, the author should be punished. And we should use bullying campaigns and petitions, sometimes including credible, credible threats to authors and editors in order to do it. Similarly, people we find problematic to our agenda should be canceled, fired from their jobs, and we have every right to mob them and their employers on social media and otherwise to get their voices pushed out of the public. In other words, we need to remake the system where our mob is allowed to decide what is okay and what isn't. So you can see there's a big difference between the defensible, we're just trying to help defend the marginalized, and that. So in a sense, they make us all play a different game by expecting us and demanding, in fact, that we use the principle of charity 
to their benefit. We always have to give them the benefit of the doubt and ignore their utter rejection of liberal principles and even reality and truth. And we have to do that to drive the terms of some new game further and further up to and including remaking the liberal game entirely for a fundamentally illiberal one in which they give themselves the only available upper hand. They can mob people out, they can bully, they can threaten, they can dox, whatever it is, uh, as putatively as self-defense because words are violence. But you still have to be charitable or people who are even slightly sympathetic to the problems that these theories are addressing, critical theories are addressing, will not be willing to hear your criticism. So you have to acknowledge the true point, and you have to acknowledge the whatever the it-just-seems-like part, and you have to do it faithfully and accurately every time. And so what you have to do is do both. Um, you have to be charitable and not charitable at the same time every time. Charity cannot be extended to critical methods because it doesn't extend them in return. So you have to acknowledge their point and then hammer their nonsense every time. You cannot ignore the nonsense part. You have to learn to understand it and you have to hammer it every time. Be fair to the fair part. Take it from them. Steal their mot from them. Make it yours, but hammer, hammer the radical activist part every time and give more time to the hammer. We actually do have to bomb the Bailey, even if they force us to rebuild or build and reinforce their mot for them as we do. Um, so sure, different cultures do have interesting and potentially informative approaches to mathematics that we shouldn't just ignore completely. We could learn from them, and we shouldn't just dismiss that out of hand. But mathematics is not subjective. We're not going there. Mathematics is not merely a cultural product, even if there are, you know, kind of technical philosophical ways in which we acknowledge that it is one. No one who understands mathematics genuinely would insist that there's no connection between mathematics and the same reality that we all share, which also exists and can be known. There's therefore absolutely no reason to open our minds to other approaches to mathematics under those radical premises. Sure, we can learn from them, but we're not taking on this idea that everything is subjective. No. Objective reality exists, and we can know rather a lot about it. There's no reason whatsoever to accept a subjective turn in mathematics like we've accepted already in so many other subjects, where lived experience is more important than getting right answers. And the existence of different conceptions of numbers and so on in various other cultures, however interesting and even informative those things might be, that, that, that doesn't change that fact. So we have to do something like that every time. So let's look at it with equity, which is a little bit harder. I actually like to use disability studies to talk about um, equity. It's very helpful. It was very clarifying for me to understand equity. Uh, disability studies is actually a critical theory of disability, which means it is, its object is disability, obviously, and it focuses on the way that systems of power are allegedly constructed around ability and disability that unfairly marginalize and oppress people with disabilities. That's what it's interested in. So it actually has this idea within it that isn't wholly critical, but tips critical very frequently, and it's called the social model of disability. Social model of disability started with a guy named Michael Oliver in the early 1980s. 
and it forwarded the rather uncontroversial mop position that societies which can afford it should shoulder some of the responsibility for disability accessibility. So think handicapped parking spaces, those strips on the sidewalks and cities where blind people can feel the ground under them, nowhere to go, uh, pedestrian crossings that make noises for blind people to hear, wheelchair ramps, elevators for access, handicapped bathroom stalls, closed captioning for the hearing impaired, and so on. These are technically a form of equity that almost everyone disagrees with. They come out of the social model for disability saying that society should shoulder some of the responsibility for access for disabled people. And why do we tech almost all agree with these? Because it's really obvious, like absolutely beyond debate, that people with disabilities have legitimate issues of accessibility that make their lives harder. And almost all of them didn't choose these, and most of them would, given the option, rather than not have to live with them. And those have nothing necessarily to do with their ability to perform in various uh, dimensions of society, whether it's their job, whether it's you know entertainment or something else. Uh, so it's the right thing to do. It's a good thing to do. It improves a whole lot in society that we're willing to put out some equity that increases the fairness and justice of society in terms of disabled access. The Bailey of the social model of disability is a little bit weirder. Um, and like I said, not all of the social model of disability is the Bailey. It, it, a lot of times this happens. They play both sides and you can't, it's very difficult to tell who's taking which side uh, of the thing. There's a good thing that gets perverted. Emotional labor is another concept like this, for example. Um, so the Bailey of the social model of disability is that everything that has to do with disability is society's responsibility. Not just access, but even turning the very concept of disability on its head. This is where it turns into critical theory. It's, it, it, under this view, it's no longer to be understood that some people have disabilities that impair their opportunities, and that maybe we should do something about it. It is that society itself actually disables those people. They're not disabled until society disables them by not arranging itself such that their disabilities are completely irrelevant. It does so, in fact, because it prefers, so the theory says, fully abled people on all levels, including morally, they think able people are better in all regards and that they don't like disability or they see it as abnormal and that it would be better if it didn't exist. And they misinterpret this all to mean that basically that, that society hates or doesn't care about disabled people. Uh, and so the responsibility then becomes 100% on society to accommodate disabled people, or it is disabling them. Their disability isn't disabling them. Society that's not perfectly accessible and accommodating is disabling them. That's the critical view. The difference is not even subtle. Um, so that pushes the ideas of equity over disability out of the range where everybody agrees and into a range where basically nobody agrees except the activists, not even most disabled people. For example, a paper recently came across my path about disabled athletes indicating that there shouldn't be disabled sports at all, however inspiring those are or rewarding for the participants, because only a privileged minority of disabled people can be athletes. So just get rid of all disabled sports because disabled sports are problematic. An even further extension of this ridiculous argument is sometimes made by fat studies scholars who really hate sports. Um, 
and the argument is that sports, and they're particularly focused on the Olympics in this regard, Charlotte Cooper uh, is a fat scholar and activist, maybe the most influential one in the UK who absolutely loathes the Olympics. Then the argument is that sports and the Olympics shouldn't exist because it favors thin and fit people and celebrates thinness and fitness so much that it's harmful to fat people that it even exists. And so they really, you know, this is really not something that most people would get behind. Um, It's a very different thing. So I do think, though, that we can use the social model of disability thing to be very charitable to equity and to not be too far with it. Um, We can agree on some equity for disability, but see other calls that go too far. And it's instructive to look at where the line is, which actually for disabled stuff seems to be pretty obvious. Um, But if we take the example of, say, of women, there's also some, some obvious conclusions we can draw. It is a biological fact, for example, that women are the only sex to give, I'll get in trouble for saying this, which is ridiculous, to give birth, and that many women whatever bullshit feminists want to say about this, feel strongly compelled to have children at some point in their lives. Um, Maternity is hard biologically, though, both during and after, and motherhood is often uniquely demanding on women, which can impair women's careers in obvious ways. This is not actually controversial to say this, except in made-up land. So sensible equity could be argued for, I'm not saying should be implemented, but could be argued for on those grounds, where we would work under a banner of equity to try to make policies around maternity leave and its impacts on promotion and so on that try to level the the playing field there a little bit, that increase access to promotion and so on for women when motherhood is involved. Um, I'm not saying we should do it. I'm saying that a reasonable liberal argument for equity could be made there, and many people would agree to some of this, but certainly not all of it. Um, they certainly are going to be more likely to agree to some of this than they would to token hires and blind promotions of women for equity, which mostly harm women anyway. Uh, obviously, in both of those cases, it's biological or physical limitations of one sort or another that become the relevant issue. When we look at race, it gets a little harder because there's very little good reason to think that there are substantive biological or physical differences between the races that could impact employment, for example. But there are differences in outcomes, so where can equity fit in? Um, To deal with this, we actually we're going to have to look at kinds of unfairness that don't just come up from physical and biological limitations then. Uh, So maybe there is some actual discrimination against disabled people, women, racial minorities, and so on. Uh, Asians, I guess, with the racial case present quite a paradox for theory here. But maybe there is actually discrimination in certain cases, and maybe it is on a race-by-race basis that is genuinely unjust. Maybe that's happening, even though our laws are supposed to be against that. Um, Many people, and essentially all progressives, would likely agree that some measure of equity would be justice in these cases, and that is a very strong mot. We have to recognize that. Um... Equity, in fact, it seems, is likely to be broadly acceptable or at least understandable in cases where there is some clear something that needs to be made up for in order to make the playing field level and fair at least a bit because it's genuinely skewed in some way that seems generally out of people's hands and properly unjust. Not just unfair, but actually unjust. 
And for the moment, because critical social justice people don't care about economic class, by the way, which is the most obvious and most amenable, sensible uh, dimension of this to sensible policy recommendations, they only care about, since they only care about uh, financial inequity as a prop for identity politics, we're going to leave the financial inequity out of the calculation and we're going to stick with their argument, which is all about identity, not uh, not economic class or status. So this tells us where it would be most likely to be considered fair, or at least brought up for reasonable argumentation under a liberal consideration, the game that we're used to playing if we want to talk about equity. Anywhere that there is some undeniable physical reason for disparity, or anywhere where the disparities that are occurring can genuinely be shown to a reasonable degree of confidence to be the result of an injustice like discrimination, even if it's vague discrimination, equity would probably be something amenable to many people for public policy or institutional policy, and it is at least in those cases a genuine political issue that's open to debate, discussion, and so on. But when it doesn't land in that department or calls to utterly remake our systems, it probably falls outside of it. There's your Mott versus your Bailey. So for example, here's an, uh, 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 kind of make it concrete. Um, if there's some wage gap in some specific job at the same level of employment, same hours, roughly same everything, that once we crunch the numbers and do the statistics, can't seem to be explained by any known factors like choices, uh, you know, culture, whatever it happens to be, many people would be open to the argument for equity up to that degree, but not further. So for example, let's say what the gender wage gap is 20, whatever sense it is, but it's found in a careful analysis that in some job, um, after controlling for every conceivable factor, uh, three cents cannot be accounted for by any other determination. An argument to adjust for equity's sake by about three cents, to give three extra cents of equity pay or some equivalent, would likely be fairly well received and broadly uh, something that could be broadly argued for and wouldn't meet, you know, raging resistance. The, tw the full 20-something would not be. And so that is where the, the equity pay is making up for some known discrimination, physical limitation, or even possibly an unexplained uh, disparity that could be some vague impacts, say like microaggression style impacts of, of, dis of discrimination or something like that. We could constitute good ground where equity would make some kind of sense. Um, to clarify even further, I'll use a real-world example in academic hiring where you can see the difference between these these perspectives. Um, it's known in some fields that women have half as many first-authored papers, academic papers, as men. It's not known why this is, um, but a real hiring program out there for equity and hiring called STRIDE, which comes from the University of Michigan, it's widely used, the stride tries to address this disparity in the following way. When a woman applies, simply double the number of first authored papers on her CV and don't do that for male applicants. They say this is equity, but it's also patently bullshit. And most people would reject it as unfair. They don't know why there's a disparity there. 
Few people, though, would vigorously object to finding the correct proportion that could be provably down to discrimination against women, if there actually is any, or that is left unexplainable by other factors. And they're publishing a first author papers and adjusting according to that. So the difference there, the Mott and Bailey in these cases would be, you know, the entire gap is discrimination versus some portion of, that's the Bailey, versus the some portion of the gap is discrimination, and we can adjust for that. The Mott and Bailey are very different there. So when we start to argue against something like equity, there's this mot, and it has to be recognized. It's it's that there could be actually discrimination, or there could be actual physical or biological or social disparities or injustices that, that lead to a need, differences or, or injustices that lead to a need to make up for those, and to do so accordingly to the amount that they they actually present a problem. Um, some situations exist that genuinely produce unfair outcomes, and to the degree that those are knowable, they are fertile ground for a realistic and likely needed debate about applications of equity measures. You don't have to agree to them, but there is fertile ground for a charitable and honest debate there. But there's also a bailey, and that bailey needs to be blown up. Uh, it is that it's the whole thing, right? Equity and, and application often demands token or strategically preferential hiring demands. It requires bogus jimmying of parameters for hiring and pay that people don't, I mean, they just blatantly see that they're unfair and unrealistic for the problem that they're trying to correct. Um, It requires outright discrimination against some groups like Asians or whites or men. Uh, It might be fundamentally, it calls for to fundamentally remake the entire system in ways that harm pretty much everyone. Um, maybe while possibly helping a relative minority so that scores in the end come out closer to equal to clarify, you know, another real world example in the pandemic, most colleges, um, haven't been able to push out any of their online lectures until they were properly closed captioned for the hearing impaired. And it's not that this is necessarily bad. The hearing impaired do deserve equal education opportunity here clearly, But the fact that there were no other options for triaging around the sudden nature of the pandemic and this sudden huge switch, like, for instance, giving them uh, the chance to make up the course over a longer period of time with a promise that has to be made good on to close caption the videos as you can, rather than forcing nothing to go out until the closed captions are there. Um, Many hearing impaired people I've spoken with actually agree with that idea that, you know, just give us more time and get on it. Don't ignore it. Don't let it drop. But, um, you know, you don't have to hold up everything for everybody because of this. Uh, So another one that I saw recently is that some colleges are currently debating um, canceling all college athletics and some coming terms like this fall or whatever, not because of the virus risk specifically, but because there isn't enough money to fund every sport. So the only equitable solution is to fund no sports. This is what you're seeing with, with the advanced placement uh, and, and gifted programs in schools is they have to be canceled because not every child is benefiting from them. So the Bailey for this equity thing is that everybody gets to play or no one does. No child left behind turns into no child is allowed to get ahead. Advanced placement classes need to go because they're disproportionately filled with white and Asian students instead of black and Hispanic students. And we need to remake the entire educational curriculum to center culturally sensitive approaches to subjects like indigenous mathematics, but that ultimately teach critical theory 
in every academic program that they can get their hands on. And if you don't go along, it's because you're racist, sexist, and everything else is terrible, and that's reason enough to cancel you, uh, to get you fired, and to obliterate any of your wrong-thinking publications at the end of a angry mob. And this all goes a very long way from the idea that there are some things that are unfair a lot of them having to do with economics, but we don't talk about that, except as prop for identity politics. And that is the Bailey. That's They have this mott, they get you to defend it, and then they have this radical Bailey, and that's the means by which they're changing the game to one they aren't allowed to lose. So I really hate this expression. But we need to wake up. We need to wake up and understand that critical methods, including critical social justice, are not playing the same game the rest of us are playing. They're playing a different game, but they're playing it on our court. And the first rule of their game is that they aren't allowed to lose. The second rule of their game is to remake the game itself so that they can never lose. When they describe themselves as a virus, which I say is on the liberal body politic, this is the operation of that virus. This is them demanding to be given charity that they then misuse to suppress the immune system of liberal societies, critical thinking. This is how they inject their critical theory RNA into liberal cells like institutions, cultures, communities, schools, faith institutions, churches, and try to remake them on their terms to play only their game. Their game doesn't work. But the third rule of their game is that's not their fault. It's ours. Any of us who subscribe to or support liberal approaches, objective knowledge, and so on, we, as they see it, have rigged the game in our system so that even when they try to put their implement their their ideas into implementation, they don't and they don't work. That's our fault because we made the system so that it, their stuff won't work. It's not that it doesn't work in reality because reality doesn't matter. It's that we must have rigged the system so that their stuff won't work. So they rig the game by claiming we already rigged the game and that games are always rigged. So therefore they have to rig it back the other way. And if their rigging doesn't work, it's because we rigged it. This is the game they're playing. It is not something you can give too much charity to, or at least you can't give charity without blowing up that radical bullshit at the heart of it. So what do you think it means when they say that there's no objectivity and that all mathematics is a cultural object, which is dumb and you move on? No, it means that believing otherwise is rigging the game. And more than that, that all such games are rigged. If you believe in objective truth at all, you're rigging the game. Their answer, all mathematics is a cultural object. They say that all games are intrinsically rigged, so it naturally follows that they should get to rig the game too, and then they have moral reasons about oppression and liberation that mean that their rigging is right rigging and everybody else's rigging is wrong rigging. They're not on equal ground. That's how they change the game. That's the game they're playing. It's not the game we're playing. The vaccine here is actually rough stuff. It's not a comfortable one. It's like when you get tetanus vac vaccine and it hurts for days. You get a little sick. Um, the easiest thing to do won't work, which would be to just say we can't be charitable to ideas and critical theory because they're ruthless. And that, of course, comes from Marx, who said that all good critique should be Ruthless. Ruthless criticism of everything that exists. And so the easy answer is that we have to be ruthless back, but as we can actually see, that doesn't really work. Um, it just gets used as more cannon fodder for their claim and sympathetic people to their causes. 
take up with their game. So we sh we can't say that it works, and on a higher level, I guess we shouldn't become what we hate. We should not become the monsters that we fight just because we fight them. I think the, the actual vaccine here is to say that we cannot just be charitable to ideas and critical theory. It is not enough to recognize the charity, to steel man their argument, to give the best form, to say they're only saying this thing or just this. We can and should acknowledge their mot. In fact, we should steal it from them, and we have to bomb their bailey every time. If we want to take on a critical theory, challenge it, criticize it, we have to acknowledge the thing that it seems like they just mean when we're being charitable and fair. The thing that people playing our game would mean, right? The thing that reasonable people who are trying to be fair would mean. We have to acknowledge that. And we also must state and take apart the activist agenda that they're forwarding with it every single time. We have to steal their mot from them and blow up their bailey. If we want to take on critical theories and stop them and the, the dangerous influence they have on our society, the, the infection that they say they themselves that they're spreading in our society and how it works, we have to realize that they are playing a different game. They are injecting viral RNA into the liberal body politic and making it do something different that's on their terms. Its game is to tear down our game and replace it with its own game. If all we take is the charitable interpretations of the things that they're saying, we're playing into their game. And we have to remember that their game is to destroy our game and remake the game so that they can never lose. Mm -hmm.